positive things come from a world where we, when we know people, we care about them and we treat them better. And that goes from our customer to our sewers, to the folks that own the factory, to our employees, to our community and across the line, making it personal and having fun and, and then treating everyone with integrity are really big, big core values to us. Welcome to the North Star Unplugged podcast, brought to you from Bozeman, Montana. Your host is Kristen Rainey, the founder and CEO of North Star Sleep School, providing online and in-person sleep courses to help you get better rest. The North Star Unplugged podcast is about rest and rejuvenation, and it's also about unplugging from technology, transitions, and transformations, and spending time and energy on the things that really matter, which are different for all of us. You can find the audio version of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Finally, you can also see all prior episodes on the North Star Sleep School website at www.northstarsleepschool.com. Hello, and welcome back to North Star Unplugged. This is Kristen Rainey, and today I'm here with Sarah Calhoun. Tired of wearing men's work pants that didn't fit, Sarah founded Red Ants Pants, a company that designs pants to fit, function, and flatter working women. The headquarters of Red Ants Pants is White Sulphur, a town of about 1,000 people in rural Montana. Sarah is also the founder of the wildly popular Red Ants Pants Music Festival held every summer in White Sulphur, and the proceeds fund the Red Ants Pants Foundation. I'm really excited to dive into all these topics today. Uh, Sarah, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for being here today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I sure appreciate it. So if we rewind back to 2006, will you share your thought process of what made you decide to start a company that makes workwear for women? Absolutely. So I, I came from a background of growing up on a farm back in New England, and and then after school at Gettysburg College, went uh Went into the backcountry instructing for Outward Bound and then leading trail crews for about five years doing that seasonal work. And um, it was fantastic, but there were literally no women's work pants on the market. So everyone was forced to squeeze into Carhartts that don't fit and curves don't fit into square pants is is the bottom line. And I, I just got frustrated with it, as did many other women at the time. I spoke to a few other companies to see if they would start something and no one really jumped at it. And one guy was like, well, if you're serious about it, why don't you do it yourself? And so at the age of 25, I very naively said to myself, like, start a company. How hard could that be? And <laughs> little did I know. So it's uh, it's been a long road, but it's it's fun. It was I did not want to be in business, though. I think that's worth noting. I, I didn't have any experience in the apparel industry or in business structure, marketing, web development, any of that. It was uh, literally just needing a, a product that fit. Well, let's hear a little bit more about the products themselves. Yeah, so every, everything at Red Ants Pants is is made in America, which we're very proud of. And it's a the original work pant is a 12-ounce cotton canvas duck. So a pretty heavy, heavy-duty canvas pant with double knee, double seat, lots of good side pockets, a gusseted crotch for better range of motion. Uh, and it's it, it fits, right? It fits. We have a straight cut and a curvy cut, so it fits most most uh, shapes of women, although we come in all shapes and sizes, it's pretty pretty phenomenal. Um, so we have 74 sizes in stock typically, um, offering all the different waist and inseam lengths. So so that's been that's been a good start. That's kind of our core core product. Since then, we've added the GSDs, which is our get stuff done pant, which is a little bit lighter weight, 
uh, and has a touch of stretch, which is pretty awesome right now, actually. Additionally, we've got all our hoodies and shirts and belts and buckles and hats and We've done some wool vests and some wax canvas aprons and lots of good side products as well. And I have heard you share in various TED Talks that you had three priorities when you started the company, and one of which you just mentioned the fact that production's on U.S. soil. Will you share what the other two priorities have been for your business? Absolutely. I think integrity is certainly a big one. We want to be able to to treat people well, and and when we do that, it's... uh, we get better results and and making it personal in that regard too. Um, I think positive things come from a world where we, when we know people, we care about them and we treat them better. And that goes from our customer to our sewers, to the folks that own the factory, to our employees, to our community and across the line, making it personal and having fun and, and then treating everyone with integrity are really big, big core values to us. And when you started thinking about, you know, where in the U.S. to have these pants and other products made, I know you initially tried to have them made in Montana. What happened there? There just wasn't a cut and sew facility that would do any production for other companies. There's certainly a lot of phenomenal Montana companies and brands that sew their own product, like Mystery Ranch and Red Ox and Westpaw and uh, Sims, that, but they don't sew other companies' products. So there just wasn't anything available at the time. There still isn't, honestly. So we went out to Seattle area and through some of my advisors got connected with a phenomenal mother-daughter-owned factory out there that we still work with. And it's been a really, really positive, loyal relationship over the years. That's awesome. And you mentioned Mystery Ranch. You did some sewing there yourself, correct? I actually did some sewing for a little company called Wookie Backpacks. Um, Trisha and Sky, they uh, they had this wonderful um, backpack company. And then, so that was kind of where I learned the, on the floor production, just to try to understand you know, what, it, what does all of this mean? And because I didn't have any sewing experience prior to that. So that first winter, I did some sewing down in Bozeman for them. Got it. Yeah. Sorry. I got that wrong. Yeah. No worries. Mystery Ranch is a, they're great partners and colleagues and they sponsor the festival and we have a lovely working relationship with them as well. Nice. And a couple of your products, your belts and aprons are actually made right there in, in White Sulphur Springs. Yeah, you bet. We've got, we've got some phenomenal craftswomen here in town, a leather worker that does amazing work that does all of our our leather belts and keychains, and then another wonderful seamstress that does our wax aprons, our kitchen aprons, and some of our moleskin work shirts as well now too. Do you think down the road in five or 10 years time that you might be able to have more of your products made in White Sulphur Springs or expand to have more leather products, for example, in the portfolio? We sure could. Um, it is tricky. I mean, we've looked at the the possibilities of running our own factory, but that just opens a whole can of worms about, and I don't know the first thing about managing and running a factory. So it would have to be the right combination of getting the right people with the right skill set on board, but it's not out of the question by any means. And, and we have spoken with some other brands about doing a collaborative production facility, and uh, which I think would be really neat. But again, that's a big one to tackle for sure. And tell us where the name Red Ants Pants came from. So the name popped into my head initially uh, when I was working down on after the 03 wildfires down in Southern California. And I was working with a conservation biologist at the time. And I was like, hey, what can you tell me about ants? And he was like, well, in an ant colony, it's the female ants that do all the work. And I was like, well, check that one off my list. There we go. You know, that works perfectly. And and it turns out that the uh, the male ants simply breed and die that is a true story. So I was like, all right, we got the name and it's, it's, uh, it's catchy and people remember it, which, which works pretty well. It's a stunning logo. Uh, it's really, uh, awesome. Thank you. 
So you started an apparel business, as you've mentioned, with no experience. What were those first months and years like, Sarah? Oh, man. Um, they continue to be a challenge for sure. Um, <laughs> it's really not my strong skill set when it comes down to it. But that first year, I actually was in Bozeman before I moved up to White Sulphur and bought a copy of Small Business for Dummies because I didn't even know what a business plan was. And and I was reading it at the coffee shop uh, the first weekend I was there and ran into a guy who um, asked what I was doing and wanted to learn more about my idea. And I told him, and it turns out for 20 years, he had done production and design for Patagonia. And he's just been a phenomenal mentor all the way along. So when he was the one who said, get some ex- you know experience on the production floor, start learning how the product is built. Um, so it took about eight months that first year to really come up with the, the fit and design of the pants. So this was me just sketching the the features of a pant I wanted and then working with a pattern maker down in Malibu that I'd never met that whole first year. My roommate at the time, Sam Bloomquist, was uh, the straight cut fit model and I was the curvy cut fit model. And uh, that just happened to work well with with our body types. And so we just went back and forth sewing samples and prototypes and, and testing and saying, oh, a little more here, a little less here, whatnot. And, and then we finally got the right fit. And that so that whole part of product design was was one chapter. Um, at the same time, trying to find manufacturing and financing and marketing efforts and designing the logo and the the website and how are we going to build this and what sort of entity structure are we going to go direct to consumer or or wholesale and go through other retailers or and then how do we import fabric? You know, when I had zero idea of how to manage all that. So there was a very steep learning curve. There was a lot to it early on and continues to. I mean, even just managing finance for a business and understanding your books and margins and all those sorts of things. It's an, it's an ongoing project for sure. So it was, it was a lot. And I was um, 25, 26 at the time. So it seems like that encounter with that Patagonia employee seemed like a pretty pivotal you know, moment for you and what an unbelievable contact that this person has been your mentor all these years. I mean, it's just so interesting to think of what might have happened or not happened had you not had that chance encounter. I mean, I've heard that story, of course, from your website, and it's just, uh, it really struck me as, I don't know, kismet or something crazy from the universe helping you along. Yes, absolutely. And it's it's funny when you, you know, when you have a, an idea to start a new business or this or that, your, your close circle and your family and your friends, they're going to tell you, oh yeah, that's a great idea, Sarah. You should totally go for this. But but then to have someone who is experienced in the industry actually say, you need to run with this idea now. This is, you're onto something here. That, you know, that takes it in a, such a good direction. And, and having something like that fall into your lap is, you can't deny that you're heading at least in the right general direction, you know? Um, and I, I think those things, they're, I feel like they're shouting at us all the time coming from the universe or whatnot of these opportunities or connections or whatnot. And we're so, we get so, blinded in with our busyness and our crazy days that we don't often pause enough to listen and and like look up and welcome a conversation with a, a random stranger at a table in a coffee shop just you know that can then turn into a lifelong mentor it's just um it's pretty neat when you when you pause and and let it all in when you look back over the past 15 years sarah is there anything you know now that you wish you knew when you get started i mean i'm sure there are many things but are there one or two that are particularly significant? Oh man, I think obviously the skills of learning how to say no, that's a big one that I'm still working on. And as women, we tend to take on way more than we probably should try to fit on our plates and because we can uh, and we do, but it's not always healthy. So that's a big one. I think they say hire your weakness and that sort of stuff at the beginning, but early on in a company, you can't, you don't have money to hire anyone. So you have to wear all the hats, even if you're not good at finance or management or web design or whatever it is. So I think 
you know, if I had had a, a good CFO from the very beginning, I think I would have learned some lessons a lot quicker, um, just about profitability and, and whatnot, you know, running a company. But yeah, learning to say no and and also to ask for help. And that one I have have been working on and it's it's been great to because there's there are so many people like like Richard, this mentor, that are just they're willing and excited to help you and support you. So so leaning into that assistance is worthwhile. And how long was it before you hired your first employee? Oh, let's see. So I started what we call tour de pants in 2008, 2009. So a couple of years into business and I took an old Airstream trailer and we did pants parties all over the country. So I had part-time staff doing those tours. And then I would find, cause I was literally every day in the office. I mean, I would, I would set up staff meetings with my dog and my cat in the shop and like, <laughs> open my laptop and be like, Oh, I hope someone emailed me today, you know? <laughs> gone are those days, but then, but I, and I would be shipping every single pair of pants myself. Like I was doing all the fulfillment and inventory management and running the retail shop. So when I would leave on tour, I would just close the storefront. And then let's see, first pretty consistent staff was probably then in 2009 or 10, I'd say. Um, And then working up to now we have, you know, a full-time store manager and lots of part-time staff and communications director and PR director and all the, you know, production design and accounting and whatnot. So. We've, we've grown slowly and steadily. So your model continues to be sell directly to consumers at your shop in White Sulphur, as well as mail to consumers who've ordered from your website or heard about your product at one of these pants parties. Is that right? Yep, exactly. Exactly. And how much time did you spend thinking through the opportunity to potentially sell to Sinead's in Bozeman or to REI or to other shops as another option? Was that very clearly not a win financially or, you know, what went through your mind in trying to make the decision of really how to get your product to customers? It's a great question. It's one we're still, still working through. Um, But I think certainly it's a, it's a scale game. You have to sell huge volume to make the cut and we have a higher end, higher price product because we are made in America. So we just would have to sell a lot of pants all over. And just the things that that brings with production and inventory and capital and all, you know, managing all of that. Um, And I didn't know the first thing about being a wholesaler, still don't honestly, but I would rather be a smaller, more boutique business that can, again, maintain those personal relationships and, and really explain our brand to our people and then just be a huge, let's just get pants out there, you know, because I think you end up losing some levels of customer service and integrity and certainly the personal elements of it that when you do go really, really big, but so that's what we've chosen so far, and, and we'll see as we move down the line. So in, in addition to the challenge of, of not having apparel experience or business experience, another challenge uh, of starting Red Ants Pants was that you started it in a small town where you knew no one. Can you share a little bit more about you know, what your first few years were like in White Sulphur and you know, gaining respect from the community? Yeah, for sure. That's That's been a big one and such a personal one too, which is which is fun. So I... I Spent a year in Bozeman, and then I, I read this wonderful book called uh, This House of Sky by Ivan Doig that inspired me to move to this town called White Sulphur Springs, uh, county seat of Mar County in central Montana, population 900, and there's 2,000 in the whole county. I moved up here. I found an old um, saddle shop for sale on Main Street that had an apartment in the back I could live in, and then two apartments upstairs I could rent out, So, and real estate was ridiculously affordable at that time. 
so I, I dove in not knowing a soul in the whole county. And it's a pretty um, classic cowboy town, pretty conservative and traditional and wonderful. So many good, hardworking folks and beautiful landscape. It's in the Smith River Valley, surrounded by the Little Belts and Big Belts and Castle Mountains and public land in every direction. A lot of cows, a lot of ag, which I really was looking for because I grew up on a fireman. But then you move in here when you know, you're 26 and it's pretty obvious when there's a new single woman on main street starting a business people figure out who you are in a hurry and i just remember having notepads full of everyone i would just write down who who they were where i met them any context to just try to learn the community and then i i just started pitching in it was it was really the only thing i i knew how to do to get involved and and what i love about small towns is that your skill set might not be like i i started coaching junior high volleyball. And there's no way I would have been good enough to be a volleyball coach in Bozeman or whatnot, but they needed one here. And so start doing that. And I was EMTing on the ambulance and joined the arts council and the chamber of commerce and just really got to know the people in the community and certainly was not trying to come in and change anything. I just wanted to understand the flow of this place and, and really be accepted and, um, and have folks recognize that we do share a lot of similar values. Um, and then over time it was like, Oh yeah, Here's Sarah. She's all right. She's, she's working hard. (laughs) You know, it's been, it's been good. Uh, It's a great, a great community for sure. And the historic building you bought is the same one where you're living and working out of right now, correct? That's uh, yep. That's where the shop still is. And my office is now in the back. I've moved into this, um, the Royal Bringling house now. So I do not live behind the shop anymore after 15 years of doing so. So that's a nice, nice separation finally. And um, I know that you had some tenants uh, when you initially moved into that building. You had some tenants above you and some interesting stories about them. Can you share a little more about some of your early tenants? Oh, yeah. There was some rough some rough stories that went down for sure. I, had, I only had a, a wood stove for about the first 10 years. And my, like the toilet bowl would literally freeze solid, the water in the toilet bowl. It was so cold, even with the wood stove cranked as high, high as it can go. And, and upstairs, you know, I had chimney fires. This is the first winter I was in town and I had a couple of tenants kind of grandfathered in and one would just bring bar fights home and just not, not a fun experience, not feeling super safe. And, uh, and then my other tenant, he actually had a gun go off um, while he was upstairs and a bullet got lodged in his leg. That was my first EMT call, actually. So there were things like that where I, my mom was like, what have you done, Sarah? <laughs> like, is this really the trajectory of your life? And also when I when I first moved here in 05, I think, I think it was the first chamber meeting I went to, The Economist had just released a report naming Mara County as the lowest income of any county in the entire nation which was pretty hard to believe. And I remember just thinking, well, guys, it's only up from here, you know? Um, like it was definitely, a, it's like your classic boom and bust little little town dependent on natural, natural resources over the years and had been a lot of mining and then logging and then the sawmill moved out in the early 80s, I think. So there was kind of mass exodus then and population's just been kind of dwindling since then um, up to low five. But we're seeing a lot of good changes now, which is which is wonderful. So when you made that decision from Bozeman, you read this House of Sky, was very inspired by the book, and you were interested in being in, in, a, in a smaller, more rural area. How much of a factor was it in your mind of, you know, starting Red Ann's Pants in White Sulphur made more sense there than in Bozeman? Or, or did it? Was, or was it really more just the personal interest in being based where you wanted to be based and then figuring out the business after that? It was definitely both. I think, I think part of our story that really works well is that, I mean, you're not going to get a more authentic 
Montana experience than here in my mind and where the women all work just as hard as the men. And it's, it's, it comes from a very core, again, value place of a strong work ethic. And I mean, this is where women do work hard. <laughs> and, uh, and so that just fits with the culture of our brand and, and not that there's not hardworking women in Bozeman or whatnot, but this just feels so, so genuine to, to our mission and what we were looking to do. So um, that's felt, felt really good to have kind of a launching point from here. Also a very legitimate business challenge. Obviously we're not getting a lot of street tra- traffic to our shop in the middle of nowhere. And additionally, you know, they used to say location, location, location. And, but we are in a place where we can have an, you know, online distribution and that's what's worked for us. I'd say probably 60% of our sales are online with festival traffic. Now we have, we have pretty major sales and so many people are coming to white sulfur year round now. So, um, so it has been working well, but certainly not your, uh, you know, your go-to for, for running the, running the numbers of how many people are coming through town and how we're going to capture them all to get their money. Um, but I think it, it speaks to who we are being in a place like Mark County. And it sounds like there's some men who buy your pants as well. Would you say these days now we're in 2022, what percentage of your customer base is actually men? Um, for the, and we have lots of products that are unisex too, you know, the hoodies and hats and belts and all that, but I would say it's pretty small under five, 10% certainly, but, and then a lot of men buying for, for their ladies, but, but yeah, the pants, the straight cut, especially fit men great. And I mean, they're just a well-made, well-made pair of britches. So we'll sell them to anyone. And what's the red ant matching contest? So on every pair of pants, we have a little ant uh, tag, a little embroidered label it goes in a different spot on every pair and, and you're sp- the game is once you're out in the world working and if you see someone else wearing red ants pants and if if you find that your ants are in the same location, so if you have a matching ant, you both get a free t-shirt and it's just a fun way to connect all our customers out there in the world. And how many matches have you had so far? Oh man, probably about oh, maybe 40 or 50. Nice. Yeah, it's, it's fun. So five years after you started Red Ants Pants, in 2011, you started the Red Ants Pants Music Festival. What was going through your mind at that time that inspired you to start the festival, which I imagine was a ton of work and continues to be a ton of work? <laughs> yes, it, it sure does. Um, so that was certainly in part wanting to do some bigger marketing for the pants company and getting the word out, um, but also really wanted to gather people together and, and grow the broader community. And it was something just from from being around on tour to pants and meeting so many wonderful people um, and wanting to bring them together. And I think, well, I'm certainly using music as a tool to do that um, with the with the human connection element. And, and I would say if I had a, a skill, it would be connecting people. And so just having a big old party and let's give them something to celebrate and, and then come together, <clears throat> obviously having profiling a little bit more of rural values and ethics and skills and all that's really important to support rural Montana in my mind. Um, so having it like, in a working cow pasture, like on a cattle ranch that is, you know, instead of like, Oh, let's have a, let's have a festival up at the ski hill. Like it feels more authentic to me with our brand and what we're trying to do to have it on a, on a ranch and just bringing folks together. So had some friends in the music industry at the time and got some good connections and started working with Tom Garnsey out of Bozeman to help booking that first year. And None of us knew what to expect at all. And I was working off a $0 budget trying to pull this off, hoping there was enough advanced ticket sales to pay the talent deposits. And amazingly, it worked that first year. The logistics were a bit of a nightmare behind the scenes, but it we pulled it off. And 
just had our 10-year anniversary festival this past summer. So we are still going for it. Congrats. It's really impressive. Thank you. And, and that, that first year, is it true you had Lyle Lovett and you had 6,000 fans? I mean, is that is that true? The first time, the first event. Yep. And that tripled the county's population. And it was, oh gosh, we ran out of toilet paper. We bought out TP across three counties. It was like, you know, you picture a duck just cruising along on top of the water, but underneath their feet are going like crazy. And that was, I mean, we were just, I'm still shocked that we pulled it off that first year. It was all hands on decks, hugely community supported. Um, So many volunteers and staff and friends and family coming in from all over, just working hard to pull it off. It sounds like you got a lot of support from the community, which is awesome. Certainly. And I I wouldn't feel comfortable doing it if if it weren't a a value add from our county, for sure. Um, And so many people pitching in and then understanding that it's also bringing in a lot of money to our community and businesses and nonprofits and, you know, school groups and everyone trying to take advantage of that and, and do fundraisers or, you know, sell ice or water at the festival or, you know, whatever it is to, to bring in some more funds and capture the, the dollars coming through town. So it's been good too. Any idea what the economic impact is of the festival? Yeah, back in 2013. So only our, our third event, the governor's economic uh, development office, I think, estimated about 2.8 million exchanging hands just during the weekend. And that's not the secondary and tertiary effects we're seeing year round. And I mean, the Spa Motel is booked year round every single weekend. There's no vacancy. Um, and we've seen a lot, a lot of more businesses pop up and the brewery and uh, additional gear stores and restaurants and a new bakery and a new gym. And like, there's things that are, that are happening here now and new streets and sidewalks and barn quilt trail and new lights and it's really, it's really looking really good downtown, but also I think what, what's equally as important and interesting is that the pride is getting built up a little bit more with, within our ourselves and our people and our community, which is, which is a tough thing to do. And that's a collective effort with everyone. And it's, it's kind of neat to see folks kind of puff up a little. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm from White Sulphur Springs. So that's, that's fun to see. And how many come to the festival now? So we've had up to 18,000 combined over the weekend and we're really settling on the kind of the perfect carrying capacity is about 15,000. So roughly about 5,000 people per day, which feels really good. And we're, we're actually capping the attendance now. We started doing that last year because of COVID, but now we're going to keep it at that, at that level and hopefully, hopefully sell out every year and just really maintain that positive, safe, family-friendly experience. And we're really working hard to make it a better experience, not necessarily a bigger experience. And are most of the people camping out? Yes, most of them certainly do. Um, we do have some day traffic coming in from from local towns, but we have a big festival campground right there with very very affordable prices for the whole weekend and all the services you need other than power. And it's been working really well, so folks can just walk right up to the hear the music. Will you share some of the other performers that you've had over the last few years? Yes, certainly. So we've had greats like Moral Haggard and Brandy Carlisle. Um, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, Dwight Yoakam, Winona, um, Ryan Bingham, Jason Isbell, some of those Americana folks, Shovels and Rope, and uh, lots of good ones that have been really, really wonderful to work with. Keb Moe, Taj Mahal, some blues blues acts as well. And it's uh, it's been really, really fun to get to know the musicians and and that whole industry as well. And also really pretty exciting to be able to choose new up-and-comers and and see how, you know, that's what we get the feedback of. Yes, it's wonderful to see these headliners, but it's the the younger bands or the ones that are emerging 
that folks really get a kick out of and um, like to see them on that trajectory heading up. So it's pretty fun. What was the reaction uh, initially when you started sharing with people in the community that you wanted to start this? You know, what was the first reaction that you that you got? It was, you know, everything from this is crazy, but it might be brilliant, you know, to, to what are you doing now? You know, like, and, and like some of the businesses didn't even have extra staff or extra dozens of eggs the first year. And then, you know, the next year they're like, whoa, this is our best weekend we've had in 30 years. You know, we put incredible amounts of effort into working with our local law enforcement and fire and EMS and the hospital and having all of our emergency response plans really dialed in and we bring NOAA weather on site and we we really want to make sure it's a positive impact here. Everything down to traffic control and, you know, campground detour roads if the campground traffic gets too much and, and really paying attention to that. We work closely with the city and the county as well for dust abatement on the on the county roads and extra trash cans downtown. You know, all the it's it comes down to logistics. But if we, if you pay attention to the details and and make sure it's a positive influence on businesses and and our local citizens and whatnot. And then we always have a local um, affordable rate for ticket prices for from our county residents and and always opportunities to volunteer for free and, and that sort of stuff. So we want to make it really accessible. Additionally, we have a um, a street dance that we do the first night. Campground opens on Thursday, and then we have a free event downtown with a big stage and a couple bands playing just to try to bring all the business downtown, which is awesome for for all the local bars and restaurants and retail and, you know, provide the free shuttle so that there's um, so that nobody's out there drinking and driving. And that, that goes around the clock to get people back and forth to the to the campground. And we have a very good safety record with with everything. So those are the things that matter to us and and really making sure it's safe and um, family friendly and such. How many miles is the event from Main Street? About three miles out. And when you were planning that initial festival, did you have any idea that this would be an annual thing? Or did you think that was going to be sort of a one-time event? Kind of with the idea of, oh, if this works, maybe we can keep going. And <laughs> But had, honestly, we had no idea it was going to be such a big... Like We created a monster. And then it was you know the next five, six years to really get legs under that monster and figure out all the the systems and the organizational chart and the all the logistics and operations and staffing and management of it, it took it took quite a while because it's an enormous event. And I don't know if you're familiar with much with event production, but there's just a lot of details and a lot of logistics. And um, fortunately, we have a very strong team of really detail-oriented professional women that pull it off. So it's been awesome. And I understand you have a demonstration area at the festival. Will you share a little bit more about some examples of the demonstration area? Absolutely. That's so that's kind of like the meat and potatoes of it. It's it's really we again use this, you know, draw everyone in with the music and the the names on the band. And then you give them this landscape and the good, we set the tone to make it really good neighboring and family friendly and whatnot. And then uh and then we want to get the educational pieces in there about um really profiling different traditional ag and work skills. So we have a, a big corral set up. So between <clears throat> all the main stage acts, there's different farmers and loggers and folks coming in to do, um, whether it's, you know, like sheep husbandry, Icelandic sheep or roping, or um, we've done horseshoeing. We do a lot of cross-cut saw competitions and talking about the history of the saw and chainsawing and whatnot. Because we, we also teach uh, women's chainsaw and carpentry and the basics of all these all these things that we find are really important and just a chance to to show 
you know, what some of these traditional work skills are and try to teach a little to maintain them and let folks get their hands on. And it's really been a, a fun element because where do you, I mean, there's a lot of people in Bozeman who've never seen someone rope a cow and that's, you know, we get, we get folks in from all over the state who have these different skill sets and a lot of locals as well. And it's, it's been really fun to, to see what's, what's possible out there with the educational elements. And the proceeds from the festival fuel the Red Ants Pants Foundation. What are the priorities of the foundation? Yes. So our mission is in support of women's leadership, working family farms and ranches and rural communities. So uh, we do that through four different programs. The festival is our main one and, and our fundraiser largely. We also have a grant cycle. So we use proceeds from the event to then fund this grant program where we we gift awards to different partners uh, across the state whose projects parallel our mission. We've gifted over 110,000 over the years, which feels pretty good. And then we also have these timber skills workshops. So we do four-day carpentry and chainsaw classes for women here in White Sulphur every year. And we're expanding some of our offerings this year, which is exciting. Uh, and then our most recent program is our girls leadership program, which is really targeting junior year high school girls from across rural Montana. We select eight a year and it's a really in-depth leadership study um, throughout the year. And it's uh, three weekend retreats. They have a young professional mentor they're paired up with, and then they work on a community project back in their hometown. And that's really designed to, to improve the hope for our youth, increase pride in our rural communities and really gain some strength and courage in our leadership skills. Very cool. I enjoyed the the YouTube videos I saw about your chainsaw workshops. They were very cool. Yeah, they're really fun. Pretty empowering. So it sounds like many of your employees are wearing multiple hats. They're supporting Red Ants Pants. They're supporting the festival. They're supporting the foundation. It seems like, you know, this sort of blurry area of all hands on deck for all these areas. If you look at the last few years in terms of how you allot your time as the leader of all of this, you know, over the course of the year, I mean, I know obviously around the festival, I'm sure it's skewed towards the festival, but if, if you look about over the entire year, what percentage of the time would you say you're spending on Red Ants Pants versus the festival versus the foundation? Yeah, it's a great question and one that I'm trying to figure out how to manage better because it is it is too many, too many hats to be wearing. But so the, as the ED of the Red Ants Pants Foundation, that's, that's honestly a lot of my time, I would say at least 40, 45% right now, we're doing a lot of um, expansion and working on strategic planning and doing additional fundraising and trying to really manage the programs beautifully and, and, you know, figure out where this momentum is going and how to best direct it for scaling and expanding. So that's been taking a lot and we have a phenomenal board and an associate director there. And then the festival is probably another 40, 45%. It's, it's year round. It does not slow down. You know, I start putting offers in, in the fall. So right after I'm start finishing my thank you notes from the, from the first year and, you know, all the site logistics and whatnot. So that's, and then the pants company is honestly what gets the shortest stick of my time. So I'd say maybe 10, 15% of my time gets to the pants company, which needs to be more because that, you know, that needs some stronger leadership to really push forward, but that's where it's landing right now. And you've been invited to the White House in recognition of your efforts. What was that experience like? That was pretty exciting. That, uh, I think they, they were doing an economic development summit and trying to get a lot of small business owners from diverse backgrounds there to discuss all the things that the, you know, the White House and their staff can really do. And it was, there was, I remember one tax um, representative that <laughs> where we had this big Q and A and I was so nervous to stand up and ask a question, but I, I did. And 
made myself do it. And I asked something about how, well, you know, uh, there's all these companies that are choosing to manufacture overseas and actually getting tax breaks. What can you do to better support those of us that are making the concerted effort and value-based decision and more costly decision to keep our manufacturing on U.S. soil? What can you do to support us better? And, and I was just shaking and the crowd went wild and everyone was cheering and clapping and I was so excited and they didn't have a good answer for me at all. But the but I was I was proud that I was able to use my voice in that setting. Um, so yeah, definitely a big honor to to be there. That's awesome. Sarah, in, in five years time, do you see your company branching out into many more products or doing anything dramatically differently? I think we'll certainly continue expanding our, our product offerings because there's some fun things we're working on now that are that just makes sense. Additionally, I'm actually we're considering doing a pop-up shop in uh, back in my hometown in Cornwall, Connecticut, to test the market back there in New England and and see if we could have our own retail store there and in Montana and have have those both run independently and you know in-house so that we can get our our pants on more people. But so that'll be interesting to see what comes down the pike there on the pants side. Um, but again, I, you know, I think there's something to be said for having a, a really well-run, well-targeted, smaller business versus trying the pressure to get bigger, bigger, bigger is just, I don't think it's healthy for many people involved. And personally, I don't know that I, I want it to get huge, which is, I know a little counterintuitive when you're, when you're, you know, so many businesses are out there trying to grow and make money quickly, but, um, that's not really our MO. And how about the festival and the foundation? You know, what are your aspirations there over the next five years or 10 years? Yeah. So I think um, having hit our 10 year on the festival, we're, you know, really trying to, again, be more mission driven and, and better, not bigger on the festival side and make sure it maintains a good impact for the community here in, in White Sulphur. And on the foundation side, it's, there's so much potential and the demand we're seeing for, for our traditional trades workshops and the girls leadership program and, um, and the grant cycle and how we can really build a stronger network for women. And I want to, you know, start a rural institute and use use this new place to bring people together in smaller targeted groups of female leaders. And um, our girls leadership program has so much potential with the alumni program element of it and really building a lifelong network for those girls. And I think the foundation is where there's um, a lot of room for important and necessary needed growth and expansion right now. With all that's on your plate, Sarah, how do you recharge and how do you spend your your free time, the free precious moments you have in White Sulphur Springs? Well, funnily, now I spend a lot of my free time changing beds because I got this old historic mansion that I'm I'm renting some rooms out here and there and, and doing retreats and whatnot. So house projects and doing some renovations and remodels has been has been really fun, which I enjoy, you know, being able to use use the skills. And spending time with my pets and in the garden and getting out in the woods as often as possible and traveling to see family and all that, all that good stuff. But the the side projects and then just community organizations, honestly, they take a lot of time too in a wonderful way, but just being able to pitch in locally. Those are the kind of things that fill me right up. Do you have any book recommendations for listeners? Oh, I do always. Um, this House of Sky and really anything by Ivan Doig, I would highly, highly recommend. Such a dear person. We were uh, fortunate. I He wrote me a letter before he passed, which was wonderful. He had heard of um, his influence on my moving here. And, and he thanked me for, for making his hometown perk, which was pretty lovely. And um, so then we started writing back and forth. And I did get a chance to meet him before he passed. And 
and his widow, Carol, and I are still in touch. And what's what's neat, and I didn't even know this when I first bought this place, but the this old Ringling mansion that I live in now um, has a couple suites upstairs that I rent out. And one of them was where Ivan and Carol spent six months when he was actually, when he came back to write this house of sky and doing some local interviews. And so I told Carol that I'd gotten this place and she's like, Oh, we got to put a plaque up and call it the Doig suite. And, and then she sent me his journal entries from July of 1977 of it too, but he already spoke about his time living here in this building. And it's just, it's just such a neat full circle story to be, to be able to live here back in a place where, where Ivan lived and that kind of stuff feels really, feels really pretty special. Awesome. So this House of Sky will definitely include that in the show notes and listeners can find this at northstarunplugged.com. Any other book titles? Oh, Blind Your Ponies by Stanley Gordon West. That's an exceptional Montana read. Just such amazing small town characters that takes place down in uh, in Willow Creek, Montana. And it's about Class C basketball, but really it's about all the community members and relationships and whatnot. And and just an old classic, Barbara Kingsolver's Prodigal Summer is one of my all-time favorites that takes place in, in Kentucky, I think. So my last question today is, do you have anything personally or professionally that you're excited about over the next 12 months to come? Oh, I'm excited to really work hard to create space to get myself out of the, the weeds of operations and management, which is just, you know, the past couple of years have been absolutely uh, insane for us being leaders of organizations and businesses to continually pivot and just be reactive to the world. And I'm, I'm excited for that shift to get back to being proactive and, and really get to my sweet spot of where I can do my best work of like visioning and connecting and thinking about new developments and new innovations for our programs or, or what it looks like moving forward. And, and that's going to be a welcome shift. And I, I'm going to try to be really intentional about making sure that happens this year. Awesome. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. It's been really fantastic to talk with you. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And for listeners, be sure to check out Sarah's websites at redantspants.com, redantspantsmusicfestival.com, and redantspantsfoundation.org. Thanks everyone for tuning in today. Please subscribe and please share this episode with a friend. Take care, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the North Star Unplugged podcast. The audio version can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you like North Star Unplugged, please subscribe and leave a review on one of those channels. Finally, all prior episodes are also on the North Star Sleep School website at northstarsleepschool.com, which offers an e-newsletter you can sign up for.